thing for us to be able to join together in doing studies like this. Think about a couple of things that are obvious and we say them occasionally, but I think it's good to repeat and learn from this. You know, one of the encouraging things is just to see there's a lot of people who come from a lot of places because they really love being in a plush hotel-like basement with gourmet food and, you know, really comfortable chairs and lots of exciting entertainment and all of that. You know, isn't it amazing that we have so many brothers and sisters that the things they prioritize are things like this. That's what they want. They like to be in Bible studies where we spend an hour and a half reading and thinking about the Lord's Prayer in John 17. You know, most everybody who's here right now knew what they were getting into. That's why they came. I want us to be inspired by that and blessed by that. And I want you to constantly remember there are many people in the world who've never had this opportunity. There are many brothers and sisters we have who've never, ever known this many Christians, let alone be in a gathering like this. There's many people in the world who've never had an opportunity to be in any kind of a Bible teaching environment where the pure scriptures were taught. To whom God has given much, He requires much. We've been greatly blessed. May we not hoard that. We've got a mission. Let's keep that in our mind and in our heart. All right, very good. Um, John 18. Um, I have, there's, a, uh, there's a man in the congregation where I'm at that is really encouraging. He is an interesting man. I believe he's about 56, and uh, he did not become a Christian until late in life, about 10 years ago probably, nearly that. And uh, not a man who maybe you would have expected to really take to reading the Bible. I mean, he's a working man, works in a factory. Um, I don't know, he probably has a high school education or whatever, but just kind of an ordinary fellow. But he has, in the last 10 years, gotten so much into reading and studying the Bible. He's so, you know, you think of somebody 56, you think of somebody who's really reserved and quiet and things like that. I mean, pretty quiet guy in a lot of ways, but he gets so excited in Bible studies. We've just gone through the book of Ezekiel together, and now he's teaching me Daniel, and then we talk about it. And almost every single time we get together and study, he spends five minutes telling me how exciting and awesome it is to be reading the Bible, about how much he gets to read the Bible at work, because he works in a factory, he can do that some, and just, and his, his favorite line in the last few months has been, another exciting adventure and he'll say it kind of like that and it's just really cool and that's what we get to have every time we open the word is another exciting adventure and I really appreciate Tom and his, uh, his excitement you know over this adventure we have in God's word would somebody read chapter 18 verses 1 through 11 when Jesus had spoken these words he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the kingdom where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then having received the Roman cohort of officers, the chief priest of Pharisees came there 
with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon, went, coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Jesus also, who was betraying Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus to Peter put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me shall I not drink. So the Roman cohort... Okay, good. Let's go. Alright, so Jesus now having said what he's had to say to the eleven, they together go where? To a garden. I think that's quite appropriate. Think about it. Think about the significance of this garden. What was this garden ultimately designed to remedy? And where had it begun? The garden. Right back in the garden. And this particular spot was a spot that what, verse 2? <laughs> Jesus went to a lot. Yeah! Jesus always been there, always went there. So what's that going to mean? Jesus knows it. Hey, it's the first place he's going to look. Now Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. Why doesn't he go someplace else? Why doesn't he give them the slip? You know, you know they're going to be looking for you there. Go someplace he wouldn't think about. Ever play hide and seek? Ever hide in the same place every time? Not a very good idea. So what's Jesus thinking? He went so they would find him. Jesus is not having his life taken from him. As he says in John 10, he is giving himself up. And so he is in charge. You, they didn't know that, but Jesus is orchestrating the action. He's initiating the encounter. He went to the very first place they look, and what we're going to see is he found them. You know, it, it just shows you how much Jesus, after, after his prayer, was resolved to fulfill his Father's will, and he is taking the lead in getting that job done. Judas is going there with this, what? I don't know, what would you call the, what accompanies Jesus? Kind of a mob, but, but some mobs aren't like this one. What does this mob have? Authority. Authority and weapons. weapons. And this is kind of a cross between a mob and a small army. <laughs> you know, they've got weapons, and what else do they have? That they probably felt like they'd need. Lights, lanterns, torches. What do I have so many lights? Is it nice? 
Well, it's night, I mean, yeah, but, you know, lanterns and torches. They're afraid. You know, you get more scared in the dark. It's a good point. Something else I think they're thinking. You think they're going to have to look for him? Yeah! They're going to have to hunt for it. You know, we're, we're not going to let him hide. We're going we're gonna to have enough light on the subject that, that he won't be able to, you know, hide behind something or, or, or stay in the shadows or whatever. So uh, they, they're sending this uh, whole expedition against an unarmed Galilean carpenter. And, and it's kind of funny. I mean, when you see this whole big group all with their weapons and torches and all that, what do you think they're thinking? They know what he can do. They know what he can do. Yeah, exactly. So what are they going to do? They're going to overpower. Yeah, they're going to get it. They got enough people. They got enough weapons. They got enough light. They got it. What do you think about that? You know, isn't that kind of ridiculous? I mean, what good would all of those weapons have done if Jesus had chosen to use his power and resist them? You know, so it's kind of, kind of the funny even that they would think that. But we often do. We often think if we get enough equipment and resources, we can resist God. It's not a very bright thought. And uh, Jesus, he knew it all. Don't ever think Jesus stumbled into this. He he knew everything that was happening. After all, he'd sent Judas out to be a guide to these people, to bring them to where he was. He kind of initiated even the timing of this by telling him, okay, now it's time for you to go quickly. You know, the hour. And so Jesus goes forth to meet them. Now think about what was their mood as they, as they are going through the night, you know, advancing on the place where they might find Jesus? How do you suppose they were feeling? Powerful. I don't think so. I hope somebody yeah. else finds him. <laughs> They're feeling a little tense, a little nervous, a little anxious. He's always escaped before. Look at the power he's used. This is... This is this is not easy. They're not dealing with just an ordinary criminal here. I mean, look at all that Jesus has done. I, I think they're a little on edge. You know, it probably helps that they're in mass. Probably helps they've got a lot of weapons and light. But I think they're still, this is a little, this is a little unnerving. Uh, you know, despite anything else you want to say about Jesus, confronting him was not so easy as, as you might have thought. And uh, it's, it's very ironic, some things. They bring torches to search for the light of the world. They bring weapons against the Prince of Peace. You know, and, uh, and so Jesus comes out to him and says, uh, Who are you looking for? And what do they say? Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, Jesus of Nazareth, yeah. And what does Jesus say? That's me. You know, this is this is not what they were expecting. You know, I mean, the, the, they're thinking he's going to be on the run. We're going to have to search for him. We have to grab him. You know, the, the orders probably are: if you catch a glimpse of him, let's corner him. We'll surround him. You know, can't get away. And, and, and suddenly, this guy pops up. You know, and says, "Who are you looking for?" And Jesus, that's me. They, they're spooked. 
<laughs> what you would not have expected. They, they actually, instead of pouncing and seizing him, you know, they draw back. I mean, it's kind of like he popped out and said boo. <laughs> and they're all kind of falling back. And, and it, they, they didn't think he would do this. They never, that probably never crossed their mind that he'd find them. They thought they were going to have to hunt for him. And, and so I think they just sort of draw back in confusion and, and stunned and a little scared. Jesus said again, who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth? He said, I, I told you I'm he. Now, if I'm the one you're seeking, let these guys go away. Wow, there's so much to be said right here about this. Um, one thing is, when the people wanted to take Jesus by force to make him king, he withdrew. When the enemies come to take him by force to the cross, he steps forward and says, here I am. You know, handcuff me, guys. It'll take me. He is fulfilling his mission. The hour has come. Comments to this point. Questions? I've got several more things to say, but I'll open it up a little bit. Chris. They, uh, you know, since they drew back and fell to the ground, as in stumbling and falling to the ground, or is bowing to the ground, or... I'm assuming, you know... They're, they're so shocked, they almost take a step back and fall all over each other. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking is, I just think this just, it's overwhelms them. I mean, to me, it is very much like being really tense and really uptight and really scared at night, and you're hunting for this guy, and he doesn't do it this way, but it's almost like he jumps out and says, boo. And you were trying to find him, but when he suddenly pops out there, you're just like, you know, it, it just it just unnerved him. I mean, Jesus is the one in command in this. You know, he really is. It's amazing. They're the authorities, they've got the weapons, they've got the light, they've got everything. But they're scared. And Jesus is in control. That's what I think. Chris. It also seems like maybe they have at least detained everybody in the garden. Yes. Like maybe they come around and surround, all right, who are you guys? You know, we're looking for this other guy. Who are you and, and what's going on here? And and then Jesus steps forward in that group while they have them all detained maybe and, and identifies himself. And then he, that's why he would say, let them go, as if they are also un, under their control at that point. I think they probably were. I think that's probably a, a fair statement uh, about that. It, it's interesting that it says, this is an interesting statement. In 8 and 9, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you've given me, I lost not one. Jesus' word here is treated just like the scripture. You know, usually it be that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now it's that Jesus' word may be fulfilled. His word has as much binding authority as Scripture does that it would be fulfilled. And I think Jesus is trying to protect his disciples. It may not be that Jesus knows it would be too spiritually dangerous for the disciples to go with him. If they tried to arrest them too, put them on trial too, well, look what Peter did. I mean, can you imagine what a disaster that would have been? Jesus trying to protect them by letting them go free. But in a sense... Isn't this exactly what Jesus does in his atonement? 
He takes our place so we can go free. In a sense, this is a mini picture of what Jesus is doing for us altogether. Now in this case, what does Peter do? takes action. What's he got? Sword. Remember from Luke 22 how many the disciples had among them? Two. Not surprising if they got two. Peter's got one of them. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have guessed that, wouldn't you? And what does he manage to do with that sword? <laughs> that always strikes me as bizarre. You know, <laughs> yeah, I probably struck him a little differently, but gave him a sort of eerie feeling or otherwise. <laughs> but, but what in the world was Peter thinking, cutting off his ear? I don't think he was trying to cut off his ear. Do you have an idea what he might have been aiming for? Neck. Neck would have been a good guess. So, is he that bad a, a, a sword user? Yeah, what do you suppose happened? He ducked. You know, he ducked and Peter managed just to slice off the ear. It would have been a really hard thing to do if you've been trying to, I think. You know? But uh, you can imagine the, the, the swing and, and Malchus seeing it and ducking and, and he just manages to lop off the ear. But Peter's ready to fight. He's ready to defend the master. He's, he's willing to go to his death with him. You know, we're, we're not, not going to let this happen. And Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father's given me, shall I not drink it? I'm ready to drink the cup now. He is no longer, Father, let this cup pass from me. It's, it's, it's the cup I'm to drink. Let me drink it. Peter, don't fight probably really confused Peter. It's just really, really bewildering. You think about the role the disciples have in this. I mean, Peter ready to fight, and then we'll see what he does later. The disciples flee, but I want you to notice something that I didn't say as we went through this also. Notice verse 4 and 5. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Do you see how that sentence about Judas is kind of like it doesn't exactly fit in the context? It's like it's just kind of thrown in there in the midst of the dialogue. And I really see that John was right there. He saw all this. And I'm wondering if that's about the time, like, and Judas, Judas was standing there. Of all the things he wouldn't have, Judas was there with the enemy. He was there with the group that was trying to arrest and kill Judas. Judas was there. I think that's just such a shock to the disciples. Almost every time in the Gospels that Judas' name is mentioned, it's who was to betray Jesus, who also betrayed Jesus. I mean, every time they ever think about Judas, it's, he betrayed Jesus. He was one of them. He betrayed Jesus. He was standing there with them. What a shock. What a horrifying thing. Jason. I 
um, where it says I am he, the he is in italics. Do you think that there's possibly that he's just that saying I am? That's a good question. We always kind of wonder about this. Um, I believe it's John 9, 9, where the blind man kept saying, I am the one, I am he. The phrase itself can just mean, yeah, that's me. It can be the name God uses for himself, I am. I suspect that the first thought here, it's me, but Jesus seems to have a habit of using that phrase, and there's probably some deeper significance that he is God also, but I suspect the thing that's first understood by it is, this is me. Seth? I don't, I don't know, I don't remember if anywhere else before this time, uh, Peter was called Simon Peter in, in this text. But it, you know, there's the significance I, of calling him Simon Peter right here when he's the most reckless. <laughs> Hadn't thought about it, but maybe so. He was uh, acting a little bit like a Simon instead of a Peter. So maybe so. I don't know. Look. Since it was Jesus' wish that the disciples not be there, not have to go through the same trials as he would, should we see? the disciples playing as a betrayal of Jesus and his greatest hour of need as we would a lot of times. Is it more than obeying Jesus' wishes? Well, maybe it's both. I mean, I think Jesus did set this up to where they could escape. But I think from their standpoint, they didn't escape because Jesus told them to. They escaped because they were scared to death. And they didn't want to hang it close to him. So I think, you know, and, and the story Mark tells, maybe about himself, that even left the sheet he was draped in in their hand to, to get out of there. I think really proves they panicked. So I think from their standpoint, they are fleeing from Jesus. But I think Jesus set it up to where they could. It probably just been too spiritually dangerous to get pretty close. Jason. That's an interesting thought. Maybe he goes for the unarmed man. Uh, knowing Peter, maybe he just lashed out with the sword the first thing he saw. I don't know. But yeah, it is interesting. Matt. Yeah, looking back at verse 1, it's the geography of the place. It says, he crosses over the ravine of Kidron. Um, and this refers back to, well, um, we think back to David at this time when he was playing Absalom at the time of um, the coup that his son brought upon him um, in chapter 15 of the sec book of Second Samuel. And we know that, um, that um, Absalom rejected him, and we likewise should reject him and throw him out of the city, basically having him to go and flee across the brook of Kendall, Kendall mm -hmm. basically. Um, Good point. Yeah. Should remind us of that for sure. Other thoughts? Okay. Um, so, they arrest Jesus. The disciples are enabled to 
uh, get out of there. And we uh, come to the point of trials for two people. Let's read uh, 12 to 18. And the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. And the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door, and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Then the disciple, excuse me, and then now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold. And they warned themselves, and Peter stood with them and warned himself. Okay, <laughs> so the uh, soldiers that are there arrest Jesus. They're taking him to trial that night. First taking him to who? <coughs> Annas. Who was who? Yes. The father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest, Annas was in a sense more than that. Do you know who he was? Other high priest? Kind of. But they only had one, so how was he the other high priest? I thought there were two He had been high priest. See, here's what happened. The Romans started politically manipulating and maneuvering the high priesthood. Theoretically, it went to the eldest descendant of Aaron until he died. But the Romans were actually starting to use the priesthood in kind of a political way. And so the Romans would, you know, appoint a high priest for a period of time. Annas was the old high priest. He was the legitimate high priest by the Jewish system standpoint, but for, by the Roman appointment, Caiaphas was high priest. So in a sense, they were both high priests. Annas would have been more by the legitimate lines of Aaron. Caiaphas was in political fact. But the Jews seemed to have a lot of deference for Annas because of who he really was. And so... It starts with Annas, it'll go to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, uh, but it's probably not unusual that Annas would have kind of been the one they would have first looked to, because he would be more legitimate by Jewish law as the high priest. That's my understanding of that. Comments or questions about that through verse 14? Yes, Well, well and too, as they go through this process, uh, they're kind of building, it, it's, it's a it's a poorly arranged case against Jesus, but, but they are arranging and kind of going through their system of, you know, we, we want to get Annas on our side first, you know, so, so that, you know, the father-in-law can go to, go to who is our, our appointed high priest, and he, he, will have, he can have some influence to say, to say, you know, who is this Jesus, rather than the other way around, going to the Roman appointed high priest and then trying to convince the, the rightful Jewish high priest. And perhaps there's no problem with convincing them, but, you know, presenting United Front to even the Jewish people. 
that both Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, they've all passed the same sentence. They all are in agreement, I think would be appropriate. They pretty well engineered this. They're all behind this. Uh, there were a few members of the Sanhedrin, evidently, who weren't totally in favor. I'm not sure how that all was, but the bulk of Jewish leadership was very much orchestrating this whole thing. But I said there were two trials. Who else was on trial besides Jesus? Yeah, he really was. Because, you know, he's, um, he and, and this other disciple are out in the courtyard, and the other disciple seemed to know the priest and was able to get Peter in. Now, we don't know for sure who the other disciple was. Never says his name. My guess it was John himself. Uh, he never does say his own name in this gospel. Uh, but however that was, he brings Peter in. But, but the slave girl who was the doorkeeper, what does she say? You want Peter being one of them. No, not exactly. What if, what did she say? You're not one of them. Yeah, you're not one of them, are you? <laughs> See, does that make it a little easier for Peter to say, nah, no, I'm not? She, she actually says it like as if she assumes he's not. Oh, you're not one of them, are you? You know, it's easier when, 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 when the world suggests something like that in those terms. The easiest thing is to say, yeah, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> And maybe he thought he had to say that to get in the door. She's the doorkeeper. What if he just said, well, I am a disciple of his. She might have blocked the door. So can you see how easy it was for him just to kind of go along with that? You know, we're much more tempted to say the wrong thing when somebody's trying to kind of maneuver us into saying that. But once we say the wrong thing, then the failure becomes easier. You know, the, the Peter goes to the fire, it's, 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 it's cold. What, what month would this have probably been? January, December. What month would it probably have been? March. March, March April. March, April. Well, it's, it's basically whenever our Easter is. <coughs> so, latter part of March, first half of April, in through there. So, it was still cool, and, and he was there by the fire. Now, you know, think of what set Peter up for this. Peter had boasted of his loyalty when he should have been humble. And Peter had been asleep in the garden when he should have been praying. And so Peter falls in the temptation when he stood, should have stood firm. We'll see more on Peter in a moment. Comments and thoughts to this point. Logan. Since Caiaphas was just a son-in-law of Annas and not actually son, could he have even been high priest after Annas had died? Well, Kai, I don't know that he could have been by Jewish law, by Roman law, anybody can be. Actually, several of Annas' sons were also Roman appointees to the high priesthood at different points in time. But yeah, you're probably right. He probably wouldn't have not have been if they'd have followed the strict Jewish procedure. Other thoughts? Cameron. Would it possibly be that um, when he denied the first time, he was like just to get in, as you're saying, and the other two times, would it possibly be like just to cover up for the first lie? Well, you know, every time we sin, it just greases the slope. And it's just easier to kind of fit in the same mold. Because we either got to just really turn around and say, I was wrong, I'm going to do something else. 
or we just kind of slide further down the slope? So I think so. I think you see how Satan always presents these temptations in the easiest possible way. We take one little step, and it's kind of like ever taken, ever been kind of on a, uh, you know, kind of on a ridge, and it's kind of muddy. You take one step, kind of off to the side that's going downhill, and that starts sliding you down, and then that that gets your weight down, and you know, pretty soon you're just falling down the hill. There's one little step off the trail that kind of leads you down. That's what I see in Peter. We got to be careful. Don't take that first wrong step. And if you ever take a wrong step, anytime you sin and you do the wrong thing, immediately acknowledge it and turn back to God. You know, I mean, so often, even on like, you know, purity sins and things like that, you know, you take somebody who's done real well for a while, and one day they blow it. You know what happens? Often, you know, five more times that day. It's like once you blow it, then you just give yourself to it. It's kind of like getting off a diet. A lot of times when somebody, you know, eats too much one meal, then they just binge. It's like they, they blew the diet and forget it. No, we must immediately turn back to God the very moment we sin, repent, and strengthen ourselves because the devil, once he smells the blood, he's going to fall on us with all his force. Jason. Very good point. Amen. Yeah, Patrick. Uh, Earlier you brought up uh, Luke 22 and just paralleling uh, in John, but also in Luke 22, uh, it talks about Jesus telling Peter Satan has asked him. Uh, he has requested to sift you as wheat. And so basically it's this idea that Satan has asked to grind up Peter. And, and it's Peter's job to not fall. Jesus says, I know you will, but I pray that you won't, basically. Yes. And uh, and so, you just see the turning of events. Peter, he's, he's ready to, you know, not yield to the devil. So when he sees the high priest servants and soldiers come, his first impulse is to take the sword and try to defend Jesus. Because he, he thinks that that's the test that's coming. Yes. And so, he's all geared up for that. And then when he's rebuked for it, he totally lets his guard down. And then he gets defeated by a servant. <coughs> and it just goes to show you, Jesus has set every warning in place. 
He, he has given us everything we need to know to defend ourselves. But we're so focused on what we think the temptation is, what we think is what we need to do. We forget. We forget what we really need to do. Yeah. Good point. Would you be scared to admit you're a Christian to the servant girl? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Peter, we noticed in when we were studying in Acts here, Peter has a bad track record with servant girls. One of them wouldn't let him in the door when he tried to get in after he'd been released from prison in Acts 12. So uh, it's kind of interesting. All right, look at the next section, 19 to 27. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Questions, question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him to be bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter also denied it again, and immediately a rooster rode. Yeah, rooster crow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus. Listen to this. There's some interesting things about this. He questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Why? Why about his disciples and his teaching? The biggest threat of Jesus is that they're taking, taking disciples away from the Jewish country. I think so. I think they're not just upset about his teaching. They're upset about the disciples he's got. What about these disciples? But isn't this ironic? They question him about his disciples. Look back at verse 17. There are some questions about his disciples, aren't there? Maybe even who they are at this point. You know, that's kind of an interesting statement in view of what Peter had just denied. Uh, but he questioned about that. What's Jesus' answer about his disciples and his teaching? You know, it's not like I've had some secret teaching that I've given to some people. I've, I've been in the open. I've taught the town to question the witnesses. You know, there's not some special thing I'm hiding from you guys. This is not very much like a trial. Do you think? In a court proceeding, what do you do? Do what? Evidence. Yeah, like what would the evidence be? Witnesses, yeah! Call your witnesses and present the evidence. This is more like a police interrogation. 
you know, we're going to browbeat him and try to get the truth out of him. You know, Peter, Jesus said, well, you know, ask, ask the people I pre- taught. They'll tell you. Well, what happens when you can't answer somebody's arguments? Hit them. Does that work? Tell you what, what happens when you see two, you know, little kids, little brothers, get in an argument? What happens when one guy starts losing the argument? Try to beat the other guy up. You know, pretty much know the guy who's fighting is the guy who's losing. You know, he wouldn't have to fight otherwise. Uh, So one of the officers just hits Jesus. And he says, that's the way you have some high priest. Jesus says, hey, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? You know, what did I say wrong? Don't just hit me. Now, you remember what Jesus said about turning the other cheek? I think this passage is an interesting one to compare. In that turning the other cheek does not mean just always just being totally silent and just saying, okay, please beat me up. Jesus does not do that here. I don't think he needed to do that. I think Jesus is trying to help them to see they're wrong in what they did. That was appropriate for him to do. And so, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas. Now, you know, I suspect this is another courtroom in the same building. I don't think we send him across town or anything. But he, but he sends him over to Caiaphas's office. And they're going to try him there. Comments or questions through verse 24. <coughs> some way uh, ask, ask our friends if they're getting mad at us. I mean, when they say, you know, why are you getting mad? If I'm wrong about the gospel, I mean, show me. If I'm right, then why are you mad? Exactly. I agree. Yes, I think very much so. This is a convicting question. You know, hitting him doesn't prove anything. Russ? It kind of reminds me of, like, the way that we would react if a little kid did the same thing to us. Like, the mom has just told the kid that they can't have their dessert because they didn't eat their green beans and the little kid hits her. You know, it's like Jesus is that far above our thinking. (laughs) And it's just like, come on, try to understand. What am I trying to tell you? It doesn't take a whole lot of brain to hit somebody, does it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. When you stop and look at it, you know, trying to beat somebody up is just not a very intellectual pursuit. You know, if you've got, if you've got a way to show they're wrong, just do it. Patrick. Um, going off what, what Jason said primarily, Jesus is always knowing the right thing to say. I mean, it's like when uh, they started to, they picked up stones to stone him, Jesus says, for which good work do you stone me? I mean, the, when, when you respond in that sort of way to someone violence towards you, they have no other option. I mean, they, they just are left without excuse. 
And it's just amazing to see how, how convicting the Lord is and just the way he speaks. And they, they hit him because he had spoken so well they didn't have anything to say. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I mean, really, he's infuriated, you know, because he, you, what do you say, Seth? Do you imagine being this, this guy now? He's, he's gone on to await his reward, uh, whether good or bad, uh, in, in Hades, waiting for the reward, knowing that he was a man who literally struck Jesus. And, I mean, just think about how, much, how, how awful he must feel now for that. And uh, what doesn't matter what his reward is, but how much more terrible things do we do to Christ? How much more do we, we make him feel when we sin? Good point. Jason? And this reminds me of um, the account earlier when the Pharisees sent the officers to go and rescue this man. They came back empty handed and said, oh, This man. You really wouldn't want to try to debate Jesus. <laughs> you know, Nathan. Um, can you say something about why he just went and straight shipped him off to Caiaphas, or will we see more about that later? I think it's kind of, you know, going through the process. Taking him to Annas first. Then to Caiaphas, that's where the Sanhedrin will meet, will pronounce a formal sentence against him to be able to take him then to Pilate early the, early the next morning. So I think they're kind of following through the procedure of getting all the court, the both courtrooms that are relevant to pass the judgment. Jason. I have a question. Uh, Jesus said that Actually, I think so. I think, uh, I don't have a problem with what Paul said, but there's a lot of debate about Acts 23. But I don't see that as being um, inappropriate in his context. So, But some people would make a contrast there. So. Well, what about Peter? He's there warming himself by the fire, and then you're like, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? He's like, I'm not. Again, it was kind of easy for him to say that. And then one of the relatives of Malchus, didn't I see you in the garden with him? He denies it again. Now one of the things that we've got to uh, consider is trying to reconcile all these accounts of the denial. Because the accounts don't match up completely as far as who made the accusation. And <laughs> there's all kinds of ways people try to reconcile those. There are people who come up with as many as six times he was accused and denied to try to fit all these in. I think the simpler and probably more correct approach is to think, you know, how is this working? you got Peter there. There's a crowd around the fire. Isn't it pretty likely that, you know, when, when he's accused like this, it wasn't just one person saying it? You probably got three or four people joining in. And, and so that, you know, there's not, you know, different uh, apostles point out one or another person that said that, but it probably wasn't, it's not a complete thing. It's probably, probably several in the group 
who chimed in on that. I think that's probably the easiest explanation for that. Notice this also in verse 25. What does Peter actually say? What does Jesus always say? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Alright, comments or questions through 27. There's even, you know, in the other accounts, the accusations are somewhat different, which may also be with that right. person says, well, weren't you with them? And I said, yeah, you were one of them, and, and things yeah. like that. I always wonder, too, why John wasn't identified, or the other disciple, who was there, obviously, a witness to this. Yeah. But at least it's not recorded that he was uh, singled out. You know, they, they, they emphasize that he knew the high priest. It may be that everybody kind of knew who he was. They knew he was his disciple. Maybe they didn't know Peter as well. So they weren't sure he was. That'd be one possibility. Jason. Yeah. say in the third time that he actually cursed and swore and said I didn't know it. Sometimes we misunderstand that. I don't think that means he, he used bad words as he said it. You know, I think it means he put himself under a curse. Basically saying, may God damn me to hell if I know this man. I think that's the idea which is horrifying. But you say that because you're scared you're being found out and you're trying to make an even stronger statement that you, but, but if, he, if he hadn't known him, he probably wouldn't have felt the necessity to put himself under that curse. He's sort of betraying himself. You know, he speaks too forcefully for the situation if he really was innocent of knowing him. Yeah, Chris. A couple things too with that, the idea that under, under a direct frontal attack, Peter stood up, but it was under the more subtle attack that he wasn't able to withstand. And I think that's true with us. I think if, if you see it coming and there's a there's an attack on, on Jesus or on your faith, it's a, it's a lot easier to defend that knowing there's going to be a fight than it is to draw yourself into a fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good point. Other thoughts? Here it comes. Alright, look at the next section. We are proceeding with uh, this. Uh, apparently, and we know from the other Gospels, the Jews have convicted Jesus, but they can't really kill him, so they have to bring him before the Roman governor. That's what's going to be done now. 28 to 32. Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? 
They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put him on to death. To fulfill, to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to they lead him to the Praetorium, which would be the Roman governor's residence in Jerusalem. Now, the Roman governor didn't live in Jerusalem. Where did the Roman governor live? Caesarea. Uh huh. But he'd be in Jerusalem at his, you know, home away from home during the Passover. You know, that's where the people are. That's where he needs to be keeping order. And so they take him to the Praetorium. But they themselves didn't enter the governor's Mansion? Why not? So they wouldn't be defiled. Well, what's bad about them being defiled? <coughs> the Praetorium will probably have a lot of items in it. And a Gentile person's residence, so to go in would have defiled them, but why are they concerned about that? Passover. Passover time. They want to be they want to be clean to eat the Passover. Now, I, I am just not settled at all on the question of when the Passover was. I used to be, uh, but I'm not anymore. Uh, I've got to do more work on that one of these days. Uh, so, I, it, at least one possibility is that, that we are killing the Passover lamb this day, and the Passover feast for these Jews would have been that night. If that's the case, this is particularly interesting because it would have meant that the very time they are killing the Passover lambs, they killed the Passover lamb. But the real irony, this could also refer perhaps to just the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, whatever. They don't want to be defined, so they don't eat the Passover. Does that seem a little odd to you? Never mind they're killing something. Yeah, and killing the Son of God. But we wouldn't want to be ceremonially defiled and not be able to eat the Passover. You know, it's like somebody who wants to make sure we don't miss the Lord's Supper, you know, right after they went out and killed somebody. Actually knew about a guy who did that. You know, it wasn't the Lord's Supper, but he made sure he got to church on Wednesday night, even though he just killed somebody. You know, it's like... Uh, <laughs> Are you missing something there? I mean, sometimes it's like, if you're doing this, why are you concerned about that? But sometimes when we're doing terrible things, we get really concerned about little things, thinking that if we cross our eyes and, and uh, cross our, uh, dot our eyes and cross our T's, <laughs> you know, whatever that, dot our eyes and cross our T's, that, that it will excuse terrible flaws. You know, the people who are doing terrible things often are very picky about little things. Feeling like, well, that justifies them. So, they don't want to defile themselves. They're not going to come into the governor's residence. They stay outside and they send Jesus in. And uh, Pilate said, okay, what's the accusation against this man? And what do they say? We're not that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorta. What are they saying? Well, he's mad. <coughs> we wouldn't have brought him if he wasn't a criminal. <laughs> they don't want to have to say. They really wanted Pilate just to rubber stamp their decision. Just take our word for it and sign the papers. 
You know, don't make us actually present a case against him. Uh, I think they were kind of disappointed when Pilate actually wants to hear the case. They don't really exactly have a case. You know, they just wanted Pilate to say, okay. And so they're like, well, if he weren't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him. I was like, okay, if you want to play that game, take him yourself and judge him according to your law. What's their problem with that? Why can't they? Because it's unlawful for them to kill him. Yes, this is a capital crime he's guilty of, and you Romans won't let us uh, execute anyone. It's a capital crime that they don't know about. <laughs> yeah, it's a capital crime they can't prove. Uh, but, you know. But now, this was interesting. Because that led to Jesus dying, the kind of death he's spoken about dying. Do you remember in John what Jesus kept, how he kept referring to his death? If, if I be lifted up. Now, if the Jews had killed somebody, what was their preferred method? Stoning. That doesn't exactly lift you up. But Roman execution was what? Crucifixion being lifted up. So the fact that the Jews didn't have the right of capital punishment and had to get the Romans to do it meant that the means that Jesus said being lifted up was the way he would die. You see how all this fits together in just an incredible way? You know, and Jesus, of course, always has that double meaning, lifted up. His crucifixion exalted him more than just physically lifting him up. Jason? It's ironic because their inability to be able to, to kill somebody or have a <coughs> stop them from wanting to already stone Jesus two or three times already. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, sometimes in mob action, they just get carried away with themselves. But technically, they didn't have this right. They probably also, I imagine they saw some advantages to crucifying him. You know, make a public spectacle out of him. You know, make sure it just intimidates all his followers, too. Other thoughts through verse uh, 32? Yes, Russ. I don't know enough about Isaiah, but I'm fairly certain that he prophesied about Isaiah in the same way, or in Isaiah, about his death the same way, right? About Isaiah's death or about Jesus' death? About Jesus, in Isaiah. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly talking about being lifted up. I'm not sure that that exactly meant crucifixion there. Okay. Because I was going to say, did they even have crucifixion at the time that Isaiah was That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. That hanging. Other thoughts? Jason? Do you think there's also a possibility here that the Jews just wanted to make sure it wasn't them that put him to death instead of they wanted to make sure the Romans that did it so they wouldn't have to really feel any guilt about it? Because even within the book of Acts, they seem to have a kind of attitude that when they were preaching, well, you're trying to put this mixed blood upon us, as if they were really innocent. Perhaps. There may be several motivations. Other thoughts? All right, how about 33 to 38? So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and chief priests have delivered over you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witnesses to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is the truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told him, I find no guilt in him. Okay. So, apparently the Jews have told him something about Jesus being the king of the Jews. That would be like a rival to Caesar. So Pilate brings him in and says, are you the king of the Jews? Now here's something you might look at. Somebody, somebody suggested to do this, and it is kind of interesting. If you start in 1833 and go through the end of 19, really through about 1921, and just underline... All the references to king or kingdom. It's kind of interesting. Jesus is really king. That's, that's a lot of the focus here. And so Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Probably hard to believe it looking at him there. Jesus says, well, did, did you ask this on your own initiative? I mean, like, is this your question? Or did somebody else tell you to ask this? See, because whether Jesus is a king or not kind of depends on what you mean by that. Do you mean, you know, like a world emperor, a political leader? Or do you mean king in heaven? Well, Pilate's like, well, you know, I'm not a Jew. Your own people delivered you over to me. Jesus said, okay, in that case, I can tell you my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a kingdom my servants are going to fight to try to establish and to conquer and all that. And so Pilate says, uh, so you are a king? Well, he says, okay, that, that's true. Not really the title he prefers, but yeah. But he says, for this I have been born, and for this I've come into the world. Which is kind of an interesting way to say it. And when Jesus wasn't just born, he actually come into the world. It's a little different to testify to the truth. That would be Jesus' preferred self-description. He, he's a witness of the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears his voice. Jesus is king, but for Jesus, it would be better to say he's a witness of truth. And he, he, he tests people's commitment to truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? You know, in a sense, Pilate's the one on trial, not Jesus here. Pilate's going, oh, what's truth? And uh, Jesus says, you know, uh, so, so then he comes out to the Jews and he says, I don't think he's done anything wrong. You know, I declare him innocent. And we would assume at that point, this is over. Did not turn out that way. It's the way it usually is, though. The judge finds the defendant innocent. Normally the trial stops and he's released. Should work that way. All right, come into questions through verse 38. Look at these last couple verses. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. 
So, there, there's a custom on the Passover that they'll release a political prisoner. And uh, he said, what well, do you want me, this Passover, I'll release a prisoner. Do you want me to release Jesus? Who do they ask for instead? Now, ironically, Barabbas was a rabble-rouser trying to stir people up against the Roman rule. Jesus was no political threat. Barabbas was. And so they asked Pilate to release somebody guilty of the very crime they're accusing Jesus of. Trying to throw off Roman rule and become a king on his own. Uh, so that really shows you their hypocrisy. Here's a man who is a threat to Rome. And they want, he's the one they want released. Um, the world always has a choice between a Barabbas, a worldly hero, and Jesus. Which one do we want? Comments and questions on chapter 18. Yes, J.D. Definitely uh, the word truth has been a theme in the gospel, even from the, the prologue. You know, he was full of grace and truth. You know, truth shall set you free, all those things. And here we have Pilate you know, asking, you know, what is truth? Um, I'm not sure what, what to make of that, but it's like Jesus is the truth, I guess. And the world just doesn't get that. You know, well, what is it? They don't get Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what Pilate meant, but I'm almost like... What's truth? You know, it's like, for the world, truth doesn't have a lot of meaning. If you don't have the Lord, you really don't have much in the way of anything that could be called truth. Matt? I thought it was kind of interesting. I looked back in the other Gospels, um, and I noticed that when they arrested um, Jesus, they came to him like he was a robber, and that the person that they set free was a robber. Excellent point. Yes. Chris? Why is it that he would offer Jesus to be released when, you know, as a almost a gesture, when he wasn't even really detained or uh, convicted of a crime? I've never understood exactly how that was. That maybe a way to say, all right, he's guilty, but I'll put him in the amnesty program or something like that. Yeah, good point. He just wants a way to get out of the responsibility uh, with Jesus. I think. Alright, well, I'll, I'll, I'll convict him, I'll say he's guilty, but then I want to release him. Is that, so maybe, maybe so. they would be satisfied with the conviction? Yes, or maybe he thinks the crowd would, would want Jesus to be released, even though the leaders didn't. It's a little hard to know the dynamics of this for him, because it is a little surprising. I yeah. often thought, he's like, okay, here's someone you know, who hasn't really committed a crime, and Barabbas, he's, off, he's offering someone who who he thinks the crowd's going to let off so he can go kill Barabbas. Right. I think that this really backfires on him. Whatever he thought, he was mistaken. <laughs> hey, you know, it's like when you, when you no longer act on the basis of principle and you just try to work things out, it's going to blow up in your face. It's got to be on principle. He will not convict him because he is innocent, not just because they asked for him instead of Barabbas. You put it on that basis, you're, it's, gonna, it's not going to work. You do what's right because it's right, not just because it happened to work out okay in this situation. So he didn't do the right thing to even offer him the choice. You don't offer a choice. He's innocent. You don't convict him. Yeah, but I was just going to say, I think it's an interesting uh, comparison to see how they compared Barabbas to Jesus, because Barabbas means son of the father. Good point. And Jesus is what? the son of the son father of the also. Father. And so you see one is innocent and one is guilty. 
And I don't know, it just kind of reminds me of the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, where, you know, you have the one lamb that's going to be a sacrifice, and the other one's going to go off scot free. And, you know, we never hear anything of Barabbas again. But at the same time, Jesus also represents the scapegoat, too, because the symbol of Yes! So Barabbas gets to go free because Jesus died in this place. Barabbas is sort of us. I've always thought that when Pilate gives them the choice between Barabbas and Jesus, that was sort of his way of pointing out their hypocrisy, that he's, you know, he's frustrated that it's early in the morning, that, you know, the Jews are upset about something again, they bring in this guy, there's no, you know, and he's like, look, you guys are, are being ridiculous here, you're saying this guy's here for trying to overthrow the government, and you want me to give you back somebody that did try to overthrow the government. It certainly does expose that, whatever his purpose was, it certainly shows that, Seth. Does Pilate suggest Barabbas, though? Um, it doesn't in this account, does he? In, in some account? of the others, it may be that he suggested. I'm not sure about that. Okay. All right, other comments and questions? Yes. Um, I think it's interesting that when they take him before Annas, they ask him about his disciples and his teaching to try to disprove him in that manner, which they still don't achieve, but they at least attempt it. Whereas when they take him before Pilate, he tries to prove that he is, I mean, he asks if he is king of the Jews. When he asks the correct question, he can't disprove it. The Jews didn't even try to prove that he wasn't who he said he was, because had they taken Jesus, and had the Jews put him against what their teachings were, they wouldn't have been able to find anything, and they would have had to prove themselves wrong. So they had to go in; they had to go outside of their own teachings to even attempt to do anything. Yeah, you know, you ever thought about how hard it was for them to do what they were trying to do? You know, how you convict somebody like Jesus? It takes a lot of work and uh, a lot of dishonesty, a lot of manipulation. All right, very good. Good discussion uh, so far. I appreciate that. We're going to close this part here at the end of chapter 18, and uh, we'll, we'll have another period of study a little later on, and we'll work some more. In a minute, I'm, we, we're going to divide up for some games.